I, I actually will tell you that I flew in uh, really almost to see Justin, because that's like everything else. I, I, it's, it's so, I learned so much from the last time Justin was here. It's really exciting to have Justin back here in Savannah. We have a ton of fun and there's a tremendous amount of value. Um, I'm Adam Singer. I run Ability Inbound Marketing, Ability SEO. We're the sponsor organization for this HubSpot user group. Uh, we are delighted to have everyone here today. Uh, if you are on the list, you should get, the, to get information about our quarterly events of this sort. Um, I wanted to, uh, SBC asked me to announce there is an event here. Uh, they're doing a training about this. About digital marketing at Digicon 2019. So if you want more information, it will be up here at the sign up as you walk out. Please take food, take food home, enjoy it. Uh, I'll leave it over to Justin now. Enjoy and forward to your feedback. All right, let me see a show of hands if creating or planning content is part of your job function. All right, me too. And that's exactly why I'm here because the topic of today's discussion is to learn an inbound strategy framework that people will love and it'll get your content ranking on the first page of Google. Now, this framework has been something that, actually, I don't like stages. I feel like I'm staying above everybody. Uh, this framework has been something that I dedicated my time and energy to solving and improving for the past several years. And the reason why I'm here today is because I've seen this framework, or the reason why I'm so adamant about updating this framework year over year is because I've seen the impact that this framework can have on people's businesses as well as their lives. And I'm here today because I'm going to help your business through your inbound strategy transformation. Now, if you're curious about the context of the impact that this framework can have, this is a screenshot from one of the attendees who came out to one of my first trainings in 2017. And after that, after that training, they implemented this framework and 18 months later, their non-paid organic website traffic surpassed 10,000 uniquely monthly visits, but more importantly, their conversion rate went from 0.04 to 2%. So not only were they attracting more traffic, but they were attracting the right type of traffic and ultimately converting that traffic into leads into customers. So a little bit about myself. So I've been a digital marketer for a little over a decade now. I've been at HubSpot for about five years. And I'm currently one of HubSpot's senior course creators for their marketing team. And one of the first trainings I created for HubSpot was the content marketing certification course. Raise your hand if you've either earned the certification or you're on your journey to earning it right now. Okay, so a couple of people. So that certification launched in November 2016. And since it launched, it's awarded over 35,000 certification credentials to professionals across the globe. And once that certification launched, I wanted to continue the momentum by uh, working on advanced level content for people who want to continue their journey to mastering content marketing. So I created, this is when I started working on this inbound strategy framework. And what I did was I put together an experiment and I found some initial uh, positive results. So I put together a training and I wanted to pilot it at some HubSpot user groups. So after the first two events, I got such positive feedback that I realized what I was working on was really special, and I wanted to keep that momentum going, so what I did was I compiled all of the information I've learned over the course of my career, I paired with experiments and research on the side, and I wrote my first book, Inbound Content. Now this book teaches you how to become an effective content marketer, but really what sets it apart from other books is that it's practical. I'm not a theory person, I like to understand how do I actually do what it is that I'm being taught. So after each chapter, there's different homework assignments that you can do, and if you complete all those, by the end of the book, you'll have created a content uh, foundation for your business. 
So if you're trying, if you're someone who's trying to create a framework for your business or even optimize your current one, consider this your textbook. Now, once I published this book, I was still working on this inbound strategy framework, and I did some more experiments, found some more interesting results, and then last year I did another uh, series with the HubSpot User Group program, and actually Savannah was like the first one. Raise your hand if you came out last year. Okay. So what we're going to be talking about today is really last year is kind of the elevated version from what I learned last year. And that tour was even better than the first one. And I was like, man, what I'm working on, again, it's so special. I have to figure out how can I keep this momentum going. So I compiled everything I've learned over the course of these tours, uh, paired it with research and experiments on the side, and I created what's known as Inbound Strategy Camp. Now, Inbound Strategy Camp is it's an online, on-demand, immersive workshop that teaches your business how to create a long-term inbound strategy. So what we're going to be talking about today is really the introduction to inbound strategy. If you find value in this framework, then uh, this workshop will help you design what the longer term uh, vision is going to look like for that. And then lastly, I'm one half of Wild We Wander. Wild We Wander is an alternative lifestyle brand that I started with my wife, Ariel, and our purpose is to educate and inspire people to live an alternative lifestyle. Now the reason why I'm bringing this website up is because everything that you're going to be learning today, I've implemented in one way, shape, or form on this website, and I find that important because if I expect to educate and inspire you all to transform your business content process, then I find it important that I've actually put it to practice first to make sure that it actually works. So that's a little bit about me. Let's actually talk about what we're going to be doing today. So the first, start of the first part of the training, we're going to talk about inbound strategy overview. We're going to talk about what it is, and we're going to review a framework of what this looks like in action. And then in the second part of the training, we're actually going to take that framework, we're going to pick it apart so that you can understand how you can build your inbound strategy framework by starting uh, one step at a time as opposed to trying to think about this whole big picture. So I'm going to actually break it up and then focus on helping you through one step at a time. And then lastly, because we are going to be talking about a lot of different things, I want to make sure to leave time for a final thought and then some Q&A at the end. Now like I said, we are going to be talking about a lot of different concepts today, so if at any point you have a question, please raise your hand. My goal is to make sure that everybody is finding value in today's training. And chances are, if you have a question, the person sitting next to you probably has a similar question, so you're actually doing them a favor. If you find something interesting that you want to share with the rest of the world, please feel free to do so. My only ask is that you uh, tag it with this hashtag, UnboundInbounder. Now, this hashtag has been a hashtag I've been using for the past three years of doing this tour. And the goal is that not everybody can make it out to these events. So by sharing content, you're actually helping show everybody else some things that you're learning and really helping other people that aren't able to come out. And then one last thing is that I'm going to equip you with a workbook after today's training. So we're not going to be built, uh, uh, focusing on actually completing it during today's training, but I will make sure that after the training you will have this workbook. So everything that you're learning, uh, you'll have this practical asset that will help you through step by step. Raise your hand if you're a HubSpot customer. Okay, so a few people. So good thing is that I have a uh, HubSpot version and I also have a platform agnostic version. So if you're not using HubSpot, there's two different versions and I'll make sure to give you a link where you can access both based on whether you're a HubSpot customer or not. Alright, so let's start off with what exactly is inbound strategy? Inbound strategy is using content to attract, engage, and delight relevant website visitors by telling them a compelling story that educates and inspires them to make a transformation. Now when I say transformation, I'm really focusing on the aspect of helping somebody apply what they're learning. And this is really the biggest differentiator with what's happening nowadays in today's content world is that most people are 
creating educational content, they're trying to get visibility, but not many people really focus on actually helping people apply what they're learning. And that's really that next step level of being able to actually help people through the process. And the goal is that maybe your business's products or services that just so happen to align with that transformation. So if you're able to help people understand how to transform and then your business is there with those products <coughs> and services, you're able to help create a well-informed audience so that by the time they're ready to make a decision, it's easy for them to make a decision with your business. It's something that I've seen work really well with the people that I've worked with over the years. So let's get into inbound strategy overview and exactly what this framework is going to look like. So people are creating content nowadays because ultimately they want to show up on Google. They want to be able to have, uh, there's millions of people that are looking for content. There's millions of pieces of content being published. And really the goal is that people are trying to ultimately have their website show up on a search engine like this because that's what people are doing nowadays. When people have questions, they're going to search engines because ultimately they want to uh, have a, a way of being able to find that information at a click of a button. And it's interesting though because with search engines, over the years they become more sophisticated because there's, there's millions of pieces of content that are being published in minutes. So by that happening, Google has released a series of algorithm updates over the years, and really the goal of a search engine is to solve for search query intent. So years ago, uh, uh, a search engine would look at specific keywords, right? That's how you would optimize a page. If you wanted to rank for something, you would look at the keywords you want to rank for, and that's still important. What's even more important to search engines now is, is the content that we're showcasing actually solving for what this person's uh, uh, search query is looking for. So if somebody's looking for something, it's not going to be just about the keywords as much as it's going to be, is this content actually going to solve for the experience of what this person is looking for? And that's so important to keep in mind for people that are creating content, understanding ultimately what type of content they should be creating that's going to help them get rankings. But most forget that search engines aren't the ones that are visiting your website. Search engines aren't the ones that are sharing your content on social media. Search engines aren't your customers. Humans are. And really, in a nutshell, if you really want your content to show up on Google, if you really want to solve for that search query intent, then you need to think about what content is going to be most helpful to your users or to your audience and create it and really focus on making it something that is going to provide value to them. And you might be asking, like, what, okay, so what, how do I go about that? Ultimately, what does this framework look like? So you should think of your content like a series of pillars. It's the stabilizing foundation that's meant to guide and align your ongoing inbound strategy. Now, when I'm talking about a pillar, you might be asking, well, what is a content pillar? A content pillar, you might have heard it being called a pillar page, a power page, whatever the terminology is, if you break it down in a nutshell, it's just a website page that covers a broad topic in depth and is linked to a cluster of related content. Now, I'm much more of a visual person, so let's, let's see what this framework looks like in action. So to start, you need a topic. You need something that's broad enough to be dug into at a deeper level, and more importantly, it's something that you want to become a subject matter expert on and build authority around. So, uh, raise your hand if you work for a marketing agency. Alright, so an example of a broad topic could be like search engine optimization, it could be pay-per-click advertising, but if you created content trying to rank for those terms, it could be like dropping a penny in a bucket. It's, so, it's such a large term that you're not really setting yourself up for success. So, thinking about this Wildly Wander website that I have, and I'm thinking about broad topics that I want to create content for, Truck Camper would be a great example of a broad topic because it's something that ultimately has enough search volume, but it's also so broad that I can think about ultimately how can I distill this down and bring context to it. 
So that's the first step, is ultimately identifying a broad topic, something that you would want to build authority around. But it's not just important to think about that broad topic. The next step, and this is the biggest thing I've learned over the course of the past several years that I've been doing this tour, is that you need to bring context to that broad topic. What do you want to teach people on? If it's pay-per-click advertising, maybe it's like strategy. Or maybe it's like thinking about how much budget you need to actually really focus on uh, making a dent in your marketing plan. And for me, for Truck Camper, it was DIY Truck Camper or do-it-yourself Truck Camper. So ultimately, in my case, if I wanted to rank for something around Truck Camper, I needed to bring context to it. Ultimately, what am I teaching this person? Now, a DIY Truck Camper, it's still specific to the broad topic, but it's much more contextual of ultimately what content I want to create. Now, what question do we have on this before I move on? All right, cool. Now, it's important to note that whatever contextual term you choose will ultimately take the shape of your content pillar. So again, that's really important to keep in mind because you identify the broad topic, you made it contextual, when you make it contextual, that is you putting a stake in the ground saying, okay, this is ultimately what we want to try and rank for. Uh, now the next step is to think about a series of subtopics. Now what subtopics are, they're going to live around this content pillar. Um, and they're ultimately going to provide value and support it. But they also provide value by themselves, maybe in the form of like a blog post or a video. So some examples of subtopics would be relevant website content. It could be a blog. Raise your hand and give a blog. So some of us. So it could be blog content. It could be website content. Really, it's any content that's going to be on your website. The next one is a relevant piece of content from a third-party website. So maybe you did a guest blog for somebody um, on this specific topic that you're trying to build authority around. And then the last one is other forms of media published on different channels. And this is a big one because if you're creating a piece of content, and this is something I've seen so many times with different businesses that I've worked with, is that they'll publish something and they'll move on to the next piece that they want to create versus they just spend so much time on this one piece of content. How can you use this and repurpose it in many different ways to ultimately create different experiences, but you're essentially saying the same thing. And I've had people have questions, well, isn't that duplicate content? It's not duplicate content. It's, well, duplicate content would be like if you had a website page that you published over and over and over with the same content on it. Like, that'll get you dinged, but if you're taking that content and using it to maybe build a YouTube video, it's ultimately going to be on a different channel, but it's creating the best experience possible for that channel. You're thinking about that user first. Now, the last piece that is going to create uh, this, uh, this topic cluster of everything that's going to exist uh, in support of this content pillar is that you need to link everything together. So at a minimum, you need to make sure that all of these subtopics are linking to the content pillar. And why might that be helpful? Why, why, why is it important to make sure that all the subtopics that you have are linking to your content pillar? Backlinks for SEO. Backlinks for SEO, that's one. Anybody else? Exactly, and that's the big piece is that ultimately you want to make sure that whatever content you're creating is helping guide somebody to that next step. It'd be like, if you didn't do this, it'd be like if you had a house with an amazing room but it didn't have a door, you couldn't access it, right? Like if, you're, if you found this amazing piece of content but it doesn't tell you where to go next to continue consuming or to learn more, then you're having that missed opportunity. So you want to make sure that you're creating pathways for people to actually access content and you're trying to guide them to the most relevant source possible. And if your content pillar is the source of truth, that one page that you have that is providing value, ultimately you want to make sure that everything is connecting to that. Now I have that question, should you link from your content pillar to all of your subtopics? You really can, but you want to make
make sure it's case by case. You want to always make sure that you're solving for your audience first, not the search engine. Right? Like if I was to tell you that, well, this is only going to work if you have 30 subtopics and your responsibility is all of 30 subtopics. If you're thinking about it from a user perspective and somebody's coming to that page, is that actually helpful? Are you solving for their experience or are you trying to solve for SEO and trying to get more visibility? So ultimately, in a nutshell, whenever you're thinking about should I do this, think about put yourself in the shoes of the visitor and see if that's going to help them because ultimately, if it's not going to help them and they're not finding value in it, then search engines are going to find value in it. So that's why it's so important to solve for that human first. Now, what this looks like in action would be like, if you have a page on your website, like this is the blog post that links over to that truck camera page that I have. This is a video that's on YouTube. And one thing that's interesting about YouTube is that if you keep your description short, you can actually have a link that's clickable above the fold. So if you're looking for a way to optimize your YouTube videos um, with a link, just make sure that it doesn't get cut off or somebody has to click that button because the likelihood of somebody clicking that button um, is not, don't count on somebody clicking that button to go through the website, make sure that it's going to be visible. And then the last one, this is going to be one of the most important ones, is guest blogging on external websites. This has been something that's been successful for me with the other experiments that I've done over the years. Um, and mainly, insert your name is in the, in the back left? Jordan. So Jordan said earlier, like, by including links from other websites to you, you're getting an inbound link. Now, what an inbound link is, it's a link from another website to your own website. And the reason why these are so important is because they ultimately help your domain authority. Now, a domain authority is a prediction of how well your website will rank on search engines. Now, creating content and having something that is actually going to be helpful to your audience is the first step. But if you're only creating content and you're not thinking about your domain authority, it's possible that you're not getting website traffic. And I've seen so many people get frustrated over the years. Like, I know my content is, is helpful. I'm not getting any traffic. Why am I not getting any traffic to it? And it's because a search engine is going to look at content that exists, but it's also going to look at how authoritative is that content. And the way that you get authority is, again, going back to inbound links. How many people are linking to your content? A link from somebody else's website to yours is essentially a vote of confidence. The more of those that you have, you can see an increase in domain authority, even page authority that, to that page that it's linking to. So if you have an issue right now where you have content that you know is helpful, but it's not getting any rankings, chances are that your domain authority or that specific page's authority is low and search engines aren't thinking that it's helpful. So again, that's probably one of the biggest things initially that can help if you already have content and you're understanding why the heck is my content ranking? And as an exact experiment on this, this is what Wild We Wander site looked like when I first started it. So I did this site as an experiment when I joined the academy team when I started creating educational content. Because again, I didn't think it would be helpful if I didn't have an experiment of my own trying to put myself in the shoes of everything that I was teaching. So I started this website in May of 2016, and I started blogging in September 2016. Now the graph's a little bit little. So when I started blogging, you'll see that I had an initial lift in traffic, but it really sort of plateaued. So I wanted to do another experiment, so I launched that content pillar for that DIY truck camera page. And again, I saw a, a lift in traffic, but then it plateaued. So it's like, all right, well now I know I already have content, right? Like if you have a new website, you have, you have to start off with getting content on there um, versus just trying to build authority to it because who's going to link to a site that doesn't actually have anything valuable on it? So you at least have to start with a valuable piece of content. So once I started having some content that I could work with, I made a focus to start building inbound links to the site. So what I did was, is every month I prioritized it, because this website is just my wife and I, uh, prioritized working on uh, writing two guest blogs a month for different websites. 
Uh, and the reason why it's different is because if you wrote 10 guest blog posts for one site versus 10 guest blog posts for 10 different sites, you're going to get much more value out of the 10 different sites because the first link you get from a website or from a URL is going to be the most valuable. So if you're only, if you're only building links from one website, it's not going to be as valuable as diversifying your inbound link portfolio, if you will. Questions on that? Yes? That's a great one. Your name is Lisa. Lisa. So Lisa has a great question, and thank you because that was one thing I was just about to get into is, what about the authority of websites that are ranking to you? So if you have a friend who has a brand new website that's giving you a link, that's not going to be nearly as much value as if like BuzzFeed were to link to, for example. So you want to make sure that you're prioritizing websites that ultimately have higher authority. Now I will say that when you have a higher, the website that has higher authority. Uh, it's going to be harder to write for them or even get a link from them because they're going to have more stipulations because it means that they are seen as a powerhouse in the industry where they are. So it's much harder to actually get a link from them. Um, so a, a good rule of thumb is that any website that is between 20 to 70, even 20 to 50, is going to be a good domain authority range when you're trying to research sites that you want to rank for. Or that's or not rank for, but that you would want to write for, even like uh, produce a piece of content. And a, way, a tool that you can use is Link Explorer. So Link Explorer is Moz's tool. Um, uh, Moz is an SEO company out of Seattle. Uh, and I think you can use, I think it's like 10 free sessions, but if you're writing this down, Moz Bar is amazing. Like I, it's, a, it's a great tool that you can use that uh, if you go to Google and you do a search, you'll be able to see domain authority and page authority uh, for websites and the specific content that's ranking. So that alone will really help you understand what websites are actually going to be most valuable. Great question. Yes. Once you've identified some good high value websites to try and test those, okay. any tips and best practices for how you approach them about getting out? Definitely. So last year when I was doing this tour, like I, uh, it was when I was in the thick of guest blog, and I must have written at least 50 blog guest blogs in the past year. And the reason why I was doing this is because I was trying to do primary research to understand how could I create an educational training. So again, at HubSpot, my role is that I create. Uh, educational courses. So over the, this year I produced a uh, video marketing course and a business blogging course. And in the business blogging course, there's an entire lesson on building a guest blogging strategy powered by SEO. So the whole goal with that lesson is it teaches every single thing that I learned. It shows you websites that you might be able to write for. It shows you templates that you can use when doing outreach. It shows you how to build connections and network with people to actually get your foot in the door because it is difficult. Right? Like when you're starting out, and I, and I wanted to make sure that I, I did it the right way because I get so much feedback. When well, you work at HubSpot, of course you're ranking. Like it's easy for you to do it. So I made sure that when I did this, that I was not using HubSpot as a way of me getting these connections. And I wanted to make sure that what templates work, what is the best way to approach these sort of situations. So, uh, and the workbook that I'm going to give you later is actually going to have a link to all these different trainings that I have as like continuing education. So if you're wanting to build like a guest blogging strategy and understand whether it's like researching sites that exist or tools or templates, um, there's going to be a specific link in that workbook that will tell you where to go because that's a great question. Because it is, it is something that it can take time, but the more you, with anything that you do, it's the most difficult the first time you did it. Even creating that content pillar, like it was a pain in the ass the first time I did it because it was the first time creating the experiment, trying to understand what I was doing. But then once you do it,
but don't let that deter you or give up on it because it just takes time for something to actually uh, to work well. Yes? A follow-up question yeah. related to that. Because um, I'm sure all these different sites have more qualifications and how you do it. Yep. But before you get to that point, do you, do you recommend a period of time that you're blogging so that you have at least some type of archive that you can look at? I'm sure they want to say, well, what have you done? Are you the writer who you want you as a part of our yeah, to endorse you? So you look at the right kind as far as qualifying you as far as how long you write. Great question. I think this makes me, these questions make me feel good because the lesson that I created is specific on uh, these types of questions. So specifically, like as an example, um, I, I don't recommend just reaching out to somebody and being like, so many people right now maybe get these businesses that you work at, somebody be like, hey, here's this piece of content if you want to link to it. That's a, it, it can work, but the that chances of somebody actually doing that are so low that the, the outreach that you want to think about is you want to ultimately get your foot in the door by engaging with this business first, maybe their blog and comment on it. And then when you when you email the person, you say, hey, you know, I love your blog, like actually just comment on the specific post so you can let them know you actually are engaging with them. And then you want to research what content is most top performing on their site so that you ultimately are pitching ideas that are going to be relevant. So it shows that you didn't just blast an email out saying you're looking for writing. And then to answer this point, like you want to try and find articles that you've written that ultimately align with what content you're trying to show them. So you do want to provide a portfolio. And that's why I'm saying in the beginning it might be difficult because maybe you have to use a blog post on your own website. But the more that you start guest blogging, you can say, hey, like here's some other people that have guest blogged for. So like that's what I'm saying, like in the beginning it might be a blog post on your site that you use as a piece for a portfolio. And then as you start guest blogging, you can say, hey, here's some other pieces that I've written for others. So great question. The big thing is that you don't you want to make sure that you're taking the time like and building relationships with people and not just asking for something. You really want to try and provide that value first. Alright, so uh, started building those links and you'll see that after I did that, it started going up and to the right. And really that was the main goal is that when you have content on your site, you want to make sure that ultimately you're thinking about the value it's providing. Because another thing that I see is that when people are creating all of this content. Like the one of the last workshops I gave, there was somebody who has been blogging twice a week for the past five years, and they haven't even done an audit on their site and looked at what was providing value. And the problem with that, and I'm not saying that anybody in here is suffering from this, but if you have a website that has 300 pages on it, and only 10 of those pages are accounting for the majority of your traffic, all of that rest of your content is hurting your site because you're stretching your domain authority to all these other pages. So one thing you want to keep in mind as you're creating content is you ultimately want to make sure that you are pruning that content and making sure that the content that does exist on the site is providing value. Because if Google is going to say, well, yeah, you have this one page that's crushing it, but you also have 100 pages that don't have any traffic, that's going to bring your overall website visibility down. I did an experiment right now. Like I said, I'm always doing, trying to refine this. Um, if you see the graph, the way that it looks is my traffic goes down for two months, but then it shot up again. And last month, I had the highest organic traffic month after I removed over 50% of the website content that I have. Now it is difficult, but if you're removing website content, it also gives you the opportunity to build a portfolio of guest blog posts that you might want to be able to use instead of just throwing that content away. And the reason why I'm saying you want to be careful about that is I don't want anybody going back to this and well Justin said we should get rid of our website content, half of our website content, but it's just being mindful of the experience that you have and making sure that the content you do have on your site is providing value because Google is also looking at that. They're not just looking at the pages that are working, they're also looking at the pages that are not working and then ultimately understanding well is this whole website actually 
Questions on that? Alright, so let's keep moving. So, I, the next thing was that I ended up ranking number one on Google for the broad term DIY truck camper. And that's the initial term or the exact term we wanted to rank for in the first place. So, I wanted to do some other things like what other value do we get out of this? And I found that we also ranked for a slew of other terms like truck camper conversion. Now, the reason why that's important to keep in mind is because we don't actually even use that specific keyword on the website. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Keywords are important. I think of them as like a starting point to ultimately the terms that you want to rank for. But if a search engine is going to see or deem your content authoritative and something that's going to be helpful, chances are the average number one page will also rank well for about a thousand other relevant keywords, meaning that if your website is getting that number one position, chances are you're going to get all these other rankings out of it in the first place. So that's why going down a rabbit hole and trying to do too much keyword research, trying to rank for all these different terms, a lot of times if you can create one great page and support it with some content, but if you have that one great page and you get that ranking, then chances are you're going to get all these other rankings anyways out of it. Alright, so that was an overview of the framework. Now let's actually pick apart and really get into the weeds of specifically how you can build a strategy like this and implement it for your business. So to start, creating an inbound strategy is like trying to climb a steep mountain. So imagine this, you're at the base of the mountain, like over here, you're looking up at the summit, and your goal is to climb this mountain, but getting to the top seems so far away, there's not a clearly defined path, you haven't climbed something like this before, so it's scary and daunting to say the least. However, others before you have climbed a mountain like this, and if they can do it, then you sure as hell can too. And when climbing any mountain, whether it's literal or metaphorical, you want to focus on the steps, not how steep it is. If you're standing at the base of this mountain, you're looking at the top, and all you can think about is how far away it is versus thinking about each step that you're trying to climb to get to the top, of course it's going to be overwhelming. You might not even get started on it because you're like, well, it's never going to happen because it's so far away. But with every step you're taking, you get one step closer, and that's the way ultimately you have to think about when you're trying to climb a mountain like this. And let's talk about the four steps of how you can make this climb by reverse engineering the strategy, meaning that let's look at the end result and then pick it apart by thinking about those steps going all the way to the beginning to understand how you can make this climb. And it starts by determining a broad topic that you want to be known for and build authority around. Now, broad topics are going to live at the summit of the mountain. Now, the summit of the mountain is the, the tip top, and the goal is that, we, we talked about this earlier with like being a marketing agency, of course you'd want to rank for search engine optimization, but it's very difficult to rank for a broad term like that, and actually how valuable would it be if there's no context behind it, because you don't know what somebody is searching for, you don't know their intent. So the goal is to ultimately use this broad topic as a way to align the strategy of how you're going to make this climb. Now, broad topics should have high monthly search volume, and are generally one to three words in length. Now when I say high monthly search volume, I'm thinking like in the tens of thousands. Now if you're a niche business, it's as high the search volume as you can find, but the goal again is to make sure that there's enough search volume so when you start breaking it down, these elements, that the search volume is still gonna be there. So you wanna make sure that the search volume is high, but don't let the search volume, even if it is high, deter you from thinking about ranking because again, you would love to rank for this term, but ultimately you're using it to help you build this strategy. So, as an example, one of Wildly Wonders North Star topics is Digital Nomad. Now, Digital Nomad is a remote worker who's able to provide value from anywhere while staying connected. So that's ultimately a term that we want to build authority around, right? Like, truck camper is related to this, but ultimately, 
This is a term that we know that we want to build authority around and we want to find ways to be able to get awareness and rankings for on a search engine. So within HubSpot's SEO tool, you can actually find potential broad topics. What it'll do right here is it'll show you the monthly search volume and it'll actually show your domain authority. So over time, as you're building links to your site, you can understand how much domain authority you have and you can actually see the search volume specific to this term. Now I know I mentioned earlier that uh, the workbook, there's a HubSpot version and an agnostic version. So uh, there's going to be a different tool uh, called the Keywords Everywhere tool that you'll be able to use. So again, this is going to be, I'll show you how to do this in HubSpot, but in the workbook, if you don't, if you're not a HubSpot customer, then you can always just focus on using that specific tool as well. Alright, so going back to this mountain analogy, we identified that our broad topic is digital nomad. It's something that is broad that we want to build authority around and it has high monthly search volume. And again, it's going to be how we're going to align our client at the top. Any questions before we move on? Alright, so the next step is to contextualize that broad topic. Now, contextual terms are about halfway up the mountain. They're difficult, it's not an easy climb, right? Like, you've never climbed here before, it's going to be difficult to get there, but it is achievable. And you want to make sure that you're making it a stretch, but it's something that is still within reach. Now, the goal of your contextual terms is to rank for them on the first page of Google. That's ultimately why you're choosing in the first place. You identified that broad topic, it's a term you want to build authority around, and the way you're building authority and getting the visibility is that you're contextualizing that term for ultimately what you're trying to teach somebody to make this climb. And again, that contextual term is, your intention is to get a ranking for it. It's still will have high monthly search volume, enough monthly search volume to justify the content creation time, but again, just want to reiterate, the goal is to actually rank for that specific term. Yes? Not, uh, it may take you off, but this, yeah. because you got people who ask, and that's one of my questions. Yeah. People also ask, does that include ranking for that particular thing, the rich snippet of the people who ask? So the people, the, the people also ask for when we actually get into that a little bit later, but that is a, uh, it's a specific search box that actually shows you people that perform the search query that, uh, that ultimately somebody ended up clicking through this listing. So that is helpful for understanding specific search queries that
All right, so when you're understanding, like going about this, uh, trying to figure out how to identify some of these contextual terms in HubSpot's SEO tool, again, you can find ways by inserting this specific keyword chain. It'll tell you that monthly search volume. And understanding that monthly search volume is ultimately going to be helpful, again, making sure that ultimately there's enough search volume to justify this choice. So going back to it, Digital Nomad at 6,600 monthly searches, but this one at 390. So that's still enough monthly search volume. When you're looking at that, you might think, well, 390, that's, that seems like it's high, but remember, chances are if you're ranking for that in that monthly search volume, there's gonna be all these other keywords with their search volume that you're getting too, so you're gonna get compounded interest on those terms. So that's why it's important not to get too, go down that rabbit hole ultimately thinking about trying to do too much research because you wanna get started because if you write, if you have good enough content, chances are you're gonna get those rankings anyways. Now, going to your point of asking about actually researching on Google. So this is going to help everybody specifically who is not a HubSpot customer, but thinking about how can you get information the most out of Google, not even using the software. So two of the first places are Google's autocomplete and related searches. So with autocomplete, that's when you're typing in a query and you see all these different queries that pop up and it's Google thinking about, well, these are what a lot of people have been searching for and this might be something that could be helpful for you. So you can justify that if people are searching for this, that ultimately you'll be able to understand like, well, if this is something that's trending or something that's helpful, maybe this could be helpful too. Now the tool that's in that workbook, the Keywords Everywhere plugin, the cool thing about it is it's gonna actually show you the monthly search volume directly on Google. So again, it's not in the specific deck, but in that workbook it'll show you specifically how to get monthly search volume by using this keyword plugin on, on, this, uh, on Google itself. Yes? Can you get um, monthly search volume for a specific area? Like, I don't care what people in California are searching for, but I do care about So you can get it. The question is, is can you get monthly search volume for a specific area? You can do it by uh, uh, like country, but you can't get it down to like specific state. Um, but I'm trying to think of a way that you might be able to think of. If you did a term, uh, like for instance, Adam ranks, Adam's used this framework, you actually rank on the first page of Google for Baltimore SEO, which is regional, but it's because he has the specific region in the specific keyword chain itself. And that'll happen sometimes. You'll find that, for instance, like Baltimore SEO might have some, it actually has adequate search volume, it's pretty high. But there are some times where um, uh, the regional won't have specific keyword search volume. So it's kind of difficult. So that's probably the best way to be able to find if there is search volume for a specific region versus like tools showing you how many people are searching for in that specific area. It's a great question now. Yes. Sorry. No, don't apologize. Uh, like as, yeah, things have changed so much and I've heard that when you do this type of research that you should at least clear your cache and or not be logged in to your Yes. Yeah, so exactly. So I always do these searches in an incognito window. That's a great point. It's something I should reference because if you are logged in, it is going to tailor it, right? Because Google's main job is to provide the best experience to you, their users, so they're going to try and customize it to you. So the best way when you're doing this type of research is to go into an incognito window and not have Google, not be logged into Google and not have them understand your search history. So by just choosing the incognito window, you're going to make sure that it's like starting from scratch and they don't have any data on it. That's a really great point. All right, so you did keyword, or sorry, uh, autocomplete is important because that can help you understand terms that are being used, but then the related searches, let's say for instance, I type in a term, if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you're gonna see these related searches, and again, those are terms that can help you understand uh, some maybe contextual terms that you wanna go after. For instance, you'll see right here, like, 
uh, older digital nomads, right? Like maybe that it's helping me understand that, well, people are probably searching for content that is helpful for an older audience that wants to be able to travel and work at the same time. So you can learn a lot just by these specific sections and understanding what people are searching for and use that to your knowledge. Now, one of the most important things, and I see it when I see a lot of people doing research, they're really just looking, looking at the keyword search volume, but that is not enough. That's at the beginning stage, understanding the, the, the search volume, because that ultimately can help you understand if this is going to be helpful to you um, from a search perspective and getting traffic to your site, but you need to actually research the, uh, the content that exists right now. Because if you just do research, on the specific keyword search volume, right? You're like, okay, cool, all right, search engine optimization is my broad topic. I want to contextualize it by talking about search engine optimization tactics and strategies. And if you just write that content without looking at content, you're not giving yourself, you're not doing it justice because you have no idea what content currently exists. So what I recommend is actually looking at the first page of Google. You can look at maybe, if you're, if you're just looking for a place to get started, try looking at the number one through fifth position. Understand, like when somebody is doing the search query, try to understand what is helpful. Like, what is the domain authority of these pages that are showing up? Because sometimes you'll see that the number two position has a lower domain authority than maybe your site. You're like, okay, this is actually something where I might have an opportunity to outrank this person. The other thing is, what content is Google deeming authoritative for this specific person? So, doing a search and then clicking through to a listing, you can gather a lot of information just by looking at the content that exists on the specific page. And if you're looking, not that I'm telling you to read all this content straight through, but if you want to breeze through, the one thing you can look at is look at the H2 tags. So the H2 tags are how people break up their content. And I'll tell you right now, the content that's ranking on the first page, those people are doing, they either have, there's not much content out there, or they've done a really good job formatting it and giving away all of their uh, strategy of how they did this specific ranking. So for instance, when you look at these H2 tags, you can even look at one of these, like, become a freelancer in your spare time. So it's, Google is understanding again, like with this page, helping me understand that this page is helping somebody get started, they even have a specific downloadable guide. So when you're looking at this content, look at what the content that exists on the page, the trends between the content, look if they have an offer, and then one thing I do is, when I'm looking at the trends that exist, look at the thing that is being said the most, and then look at the one thing that's not really being said at all, right? Because if there's a unique way that you can provide value in the situation, the last thing you want to do is just rehash what everybody else has said because that's not going to help you get a ranking. Even if you build authority to the page, you'd have to build a lot of authority to the page. But if you're not saying something new or providing value, it's going to be very hard to outrank something that Google is already ranking. So you need to make sure that you're differentiating your content and not creating noise because the last thing I want for anybody is to spend time with creating this content and then ultimately it's not going anywhere. It's not going to be valuable. Now, going back to, I'm sorry, I haven't caught your name now. It's Lisa, that's right, I did catch your name. So, let's say you're on the first page, you click through the listing, you look at it, when you click the back button, you're gonna see this people also search for text box. Now, this is the last opportunity that you can get from Google to understand uh, different search queries that were used to uh, generate this listing and then even people click through to it. So, this specific listing from WebWork Travel, you can see that the people also search for text box People typing in digital nomad, salary, digital nomad, company, this, that was a search query that somebody performed that they actually clicked through to this listing. So not only you've seen listings that were, or search queries that were used, but those search queries that were used actually clicked through this listing. So you have the autocomplete, you have related searches, and you have the people also search for text box. So I'm not even using any platforms like HubSpot or Moz or anybody else. You're just going to Google, which is like the source of truth for understanding 
these different search queries that you might be able to use. Now going back to this mountain analogy, we have Digital Nomad that has 6,600 monthly search volume. It lives to the summit of the mountain. We ultimately are using this uh, to make our climb because we want to build authority around it. And we are contextualizing it by choosing the term, how to become a digital nomad, which we know is educational, that is going to help somebody get to where they're trying to go. And that has 390 monthly search volume, and our goal is to actually rank on the first page of Google. What questions do we have before we get on? All right. So the next step is to identify subtopics in support of your contextual term. Now, subtopics are like a data. This is stuff that you're doing on a daily or even weekly basis. So subtopics are going to live down here. I know that doesn't, it kind of does look like a clip actually. But when you think about it, that is ultimately, think about the day night you're going, you're trying to get this nice view from the bottom of the mountain. It is something that is achievable. Those are those steps that you're thinking about where you're not trying to get overwhelmed. Now when you're doing some research to find potential subtopics, you can use HubSpot's SEO tool that will help you understand all the different queries that exist with their monthly search volume. And I found that Digital Nomad Tips actually has 10 monthly searches, or 10 searches per month. And again, with subtopics, you don't want to get too far in the weeds with determining whether or not there's going to be monthly search volume around it. Because one thing, again, that I try to solve for is understanding, is this going to be helpful for this specific person? Not necessarily when you're looking at subtopics. Is it something that I know that this person is going to find value? So as an example, uh, questions, right? When you think about going back to like, uh, how to become a digital nomad, maybe one of the questions would be like, how do I, like what vehicle do I need to, to actually work out of? Like, or if it's a search engine optimization company, like how do I get started with SEO, right? Like you wanna think about those terms in the form of a question with subtopics, and why might that be important? Why would you wanna think about subtopics in the form of a question? Exactly. So you want answering questions can be so helpful. Uh, raise your hand if you know who Marcus Sheridan is. Marcus Sheridan, uh, he's really well known for uh, starting the sales line. He uh, started a river pool company, uh, or he had a river pool company when the market crashed in 2008. He didn't give up on it, right? Like, talk about when the market collapses and you own a pool company. It's probably like one of the worst companies at home when you think about whether or not someone's going to actually buy your product. So instead of giving up, he took all of his money out of paid advertising and he focused on blogging about specific questions that people had about fiberglass pools. And he just got tens of thousands of visits and he exponentially grew his business. So when you think about it, think about those questions and think, if you're looking for a place with subtopics to start, think about those specific questions that people have. If they have search volume, great. If they don't, don't worry about it because ultimately you want to make sure that when you're thinking about relevancy on your site, meaning that you want to show search engines how relevant you are, if you have a content pillar that is specific on this specific topic, and then you have all of these question-based content that you're answering around it, that's going to be one of the best things that you can do because it's going to show that you are not only a subject matter expert, but you have all of this content that can help this specific person on what they're looking for. Now, when you're thinking about getting started with subtopics, you might think, all right, well, that can be helpful. I'm thinking in the form of a question, but where should I actually get started with subtopics? Like, if I have a content pillar, let's say for right now, you have a content pillar on your site or you, have a, you are going to build it, and you're understanding, all right, well, how do I build this cluster out? Where do I start? And what is the most efficient way possible? Because maybe you have a small team. So the two things that I recommend are repurpose that content pillar to increase the authority and experience of your topic cluster. So the first thing, and again, um, the 
Both of these uh, strategies have specific courses with HubSpot that are free that I've built in depth. So I'll go over it a little bit just to explain each one. But I would recommend actually taking that content pillar and chopping it up into different guest blog posts series. So with that uh, content pillar I created for how to become a digital nomad, I split it up into five different guest blog posts. I didn't just copy and paste it. I took that content and I somewhat massaged it a little bit so that it, it was similar, but it, it brought some new value and meaning to somebody else. But because I was repurposing my content, it was really easy for me to create a guest blog post that was easily 1,500 words. Right? Because if you're able to go to somebody and say, hey, like, I would love to write like a 1,500-word uh, blog guest blog post for you. I want to provide more value. One way that you can easily do it is don't think about having to do all these from scratch. Think about taking the content you already have and using that to create a guest blog series. Questions on that? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. But no. is uh, LinkedIn have a separate guest So uh, the question is, is LinkedIn publishing going to be helpful? Yes. So video on LinkedIn is even crushing it more than ever. Like that's, I think, from any platform, Instagram does really well with video. But LinkedIn, specifically for a business audience, um, it's going to be helpful. You're not going to get value from links. So like any link that you're doing from Facebook or Instagram is really links. Um, it does your bio, I guess. But if you have it from Twitter or LinkedIn or even Facebook, it's not going to pass authority through the page. But think about that user experience again. That's why I say always solve for the user. Because even having a link on a YouTube video is not going to give you like uh, uh, help you increase your domain authority. What it is doing is it's making sure that you're not having that situation where you have this amazing room without a door. You always want to make sure that you're providing some form of link. But I would think that if you have content that's doing well, I wouldn't overwhelm LinkedIn with content um, as much as I would say if you find something that's doing well, then uh, maybe, for instance, there's like a uh, social post that you've done like on Twitter, or you've gotten feedback that some of your content is doing well, then I would put it on LinkedIn. Because if you put too much content on LinkedIn, it might be overwhelming versus like when you vet content and know that people find value in it, put it on LinkedIn because ultimately that will make sure that the content you're putting there will ultimately uh, uh, be helpful to the audience versus trying to put everything on there. And a good example of this, uh, Larry Kim, who uh, created WordStream, which is a pay-to-click company. I love what he does. He's like, if you don't follow him on Twitter, follow him because what he does, he he's doing what he's doing or what he did three years ago. People are doing now and finding value on it. So he's way ahead of the curve. What he does is, is he will post content to Twitter, and when it does well, he'll add paste into it to see if it even does even better. And if it does, then he'll take it and he'll create a post for Medium, which is kind of a, a, a constant republishing site like LinkedIn, they'll put it on LinkedIn, and then if it keeps doing good, then they'll build out something like a content builder himself. So before he even creates content, he wants to vet it at a small scale to make sure that he's not wasting his time and effort going too far down a rabbit hole of creating something without like, any feedback. So yes, the LinkedIn, but make sure that when you're putting something there that it's not just republishing every single blog post that you're doing. Republish the ones that are doing well. Okay. Great, great question. Larry Kim, L-A-R-R-Y-K-I-M. He talks about finding your unicorn content, and I talk about a similar path, but his unicorn content, he had, their unicorn content has a little bit of a different path to get there, but he's just, he's really good at it. Um, and then the second thing is, I recommend host, or creating a video that you can post on YouTube. Now, 
maybe you do have video capability, maybe you don't. I didn't have much video capability, but I know that you might be hearing it. This is the year of video. It's always the year of video for the last five years. But I will say that video is becoming a force. Text is not going away. I'll be clear about that because uh, text is always going to be something that's going to be helpful. But video is just now they're, sh they're showing above the, uh, the full or above like the first search engine result listing. And video is a way that it creates a much more engaging experience. So if you're not starting with video, I started with video three years ago. My videos were awful. I had one video where I showed somebody how to weatherize a truck down. It was just shot on my phone. It has like 40,000 views on YouTube. So if you're just getting started, don't let it be something that deters you. Just get started on it. I have a video marketing course at HubSpot. It's going to be in that workbook in case you want to check it out and understand how to do it step by step. But video is going to be something if you're looking for a, a, a new channel to work on, a new medium, that would be the one that I would say get started on now because it'll pay off in the long run. So what I recommend is repurposing that content to create a video that you can post on YouTube. So what I did was I took the content that existed on the page and I turned it into a script. It took about two hours to do it. Um, and I, I created a video that I posted on YouTube. And the reason why I recommend video, I was just talking about a second ago, is that adding a video to your website can increase the chance of a front page or to a front page Google result by 53 times. And the one reason I got it is because I looked at this, I, when I use stats, I want to make sure that, well, how is it actually helpful? Because I don't like just throwing stats out and explaining it. Because when you think about this, a front page Google result by 53 times, video is engaging. And the reason why the chances of your page showing up by 53 times is because video, bless you, can help reduce bounce rate. Now, bounce rate is going to be your biggest enemy for uh, your content not actually performing well. Bounce rate is when somebody is coming to your website and then they're leaving immediately. So if you look at your page, if you look at a page that's on your website and the average time on the page is like five or seven seconds, there's probably a problem because people are landing there and they're not finding value in it or they are not consuming it. And when search engines see that the bounce rate is happening, they're going to think that that page is not providing value. So you always want to find a way to decrease bounce rate by keeping people on the page. Now video, the majority of people who visit your site, 79% to be exact, would rather watch a video to learn than read the content on the page. And the funny thing about video is that even if the page isn't providing value to this person, they might watch that video for 30 seconds to a minute, which it's still showing the search engine. If you have a five to seven second time on page and you're able to increase it 30 seconds to even a minute, it can be helpful because it's gonna show that search engine. I don't like gaming the system, but this is somewhat, somewhat of a way of being able to reduce bounce rate because if you have a video, chances are people are gonna watch that before they even read any content. Even if they do leave and don't read any of the content, they're still, the search engine's gonna see how long they were on that page. Now, YouTube videos generally rank near the top of the search engine result page. Sometimes they show up in the middle, sometimes they show up at the top, but Google offers more than just website content. Now you see that there's a feature snippet, which is Google pulling content through the page, uh, through your page without having somebody even click through to read it. Then you'll have like image search, you'll have video search. And the reason why that's important is because that ranking, that video that I did for that truck camper page, that was the experiment I did right after the content pillar while I was building those inbound links. And I, you'll see right there that the number one listing for that truck camper page is right here. And now I have the video that's showing up before it. So a couple things you can gather from this is that not only is it a chance to even rank above the number one position, right? People want the number one position, but wouldn't it be nicer to even have a listing that's above it? But it's also claiming more search engine real estate, right? Like going back to that one subtopic where it's
creating content for other channels. Like the channels that I recommend are the ones that are going to be SEO friendly. That's why I recommend YouTube. Some people use Wistia or Vimeo that are video platforms, and those are helpful because they give analytics. But YouTube is actually search engine friendly, so like, and it's because it's owned by Google, so that if you have that video and it's performing well, chances are you get that visibility. But the interesting thing, going back to the user experience, not even thinking about the value of inbound links, somebody clicks through to that video, they're going to go to YouTube, and then they're going to see this link right here, and if they click that link, they're going to go to the content builder. So again, you just want to make sure that when you're creating content around a specific topic, that it's all linking, because ultimately, a lot of people probably see this video by clicking through the page, but a lot of people might find that video first and then get to the page. So I'm thinking about all the channels that exist wherever I am and making it clear and easy for people to understand where they can come to learn more about that specific topic. Questions on this? Um, just uh, yeah, here's this link. Is there any um, thinking about the behind using the actual, using the link or using a hyperlink? Yeah. Uh, so that if you create whenever you're doing the testing of this, make sure that it actually is a hyperlink, meaning that it's clickable. Because if you don't put in, sometimes if you don't put in like the HTTP, um, it won't be clickable. And if it's not clickable, it, it could be helpful, but it's your the chances of somebody clicking it are going to be a lot. Uh, less. Think of it this way, you want to make it as easy as possible for somebody to be able to take this action. So if a link is clickable versus somebody having to copy and paste it and then hit enter, like it's not that much of a, a difference for when you think about what somebody has to do, but the harder you make it for somebody to do something, your conversion rate is always going to go down. So that's why I recommend having uh, a link like this. One thing you could do, and this isn't something that was, I wanted to have the actual visibility of the link with what uh, the page says just because I wanted to have that branding there. But one thing you could do is you could have a link shortener and then actually have a uh, tracking code on it if you wanted to do that. But I know that if I get a link from here, it's going to show up as coming from YouTube anyways. But if you want, you could actually use a link shortener if you wanted to put anything in there. Um, a link shortener would also help if you had a longer uh, description and, you, and it was starting to get cut off and you make the link a little bit shorter. But my suggestion is that sometimes when I do when I'm optimizing the description on YouTube, I have to do it like two to three times and I'm like, man, like, how can I still make this make sense while putting the link in there? So you want to make sure that it makes sense, but you also want to make sure that the link is above the fold and it's clickable. That's kind of like the big thing. Great question. Yes. Link shorteners, preferred ones? Uh, I think, um, man, there was one that I heard in the last, Bitly is one that I've, I've used over the years. HubSpot has a native one that they build into their content. Um, I think there was one that, I can't remember the other name. I think Bitly might actually allow you to do it. The paid version will actually allow you to use your website, um, like a shortened version of your uh, website URL. But I think Bitly is a good one to get started with because before I pay for things, I like to test out and see if it actually works. So I actually recommend this before you're paying for platforms. Like any of the ones that I'm recommending that are even in the workbook, like Moz or even like HubSpot, like there's free tools that you can use first. Before you pay for something, try it out and actually make sure that it makes sense for your business. Because the last thing you want to do is pay $100 a month and they're like, what's well, exactly where I was looking for. So always look for that trial or that free solution first to actually see if it works. Great question. Anyone else? All right, so going back to the mountain analogy, we have Digital Nomad that lives at the summit. It has that high monthly search volume that we're building the strategy around. Our goal is to create a content pillar for how to become a digital nomad. And then once we did that, we started creating subtopics. And one of those was for Digital Nomad Tips, where we created a series of guest blog posts, and we even created a, uh, a video. 
Um, one more strategy I just want to explain that I also explained in the uh, guest blogging for SEO lesson on that on that course for HubSpot is that if you're looking for a strategy where you can create even more guest blog posts with the same content, let's say for instance you have an example that you want to show somebody, like maybe it's um, how to optimize your website for search engines, and you have an example that you're showing. One trick that you can do if you're looking to uh, scale up your content for like guest blogs is, let's say for instance you use one guest blog and you show how to optimize one website. You can almost reuse that same exact content but switch the example. So I've seen this where like you could have, maybe it's different industries, maybe it's just different websites. So as an example, you write a, a, write a uh, guest blog post about how to optimize a website for search engines, use an example, but if you have 10 examples, that's essentially 10 different guest blog posts because the examples are different. So think it, get creative with how you can use the same content by switching up examples. Think about how you can become more efficient because when you're efficient, you're going to end up having better results because you're not going to be frustrated or getting bogged down because you might not want to have to write a single blog post like three times a week. So really think about the efficiencies that you can create. Um, even if I'm not recommending them right now, there might be something that you can identify, but always look for those because that's what's ultimately going to lead to that long-term success, especially when you're starting out by yourself. All right, so the last thing, and this is one of the most important ones, is that you want to create an intention roadmap of how you're going to connect everything together in a practical way. So I was saying earlier, a lot of people are creating educational content right now. A lot of people are actually trying to solve for the search engine. A lot of people are not trying to solve for that specific user, though. And this is my theory that the people who are actually going above and beyond, right? Like, if you can create educational content just as good as people that are ranking on the first page, if you have the way that you differentiate yourself, that you're helping this person make a transformation, that is going to be helpful because that's ultimately what people are looking for. When people are looking for educational content, they might want to learn, but they're also trying to understand how they can apply, but the, apply what they're learning to their situation. But you want to make sure, again, like when you think about this mountain analogy, you want to make sure that you're not overwhelming this person. So it's up to you to show them how to do this in bite-sized chunks. Now, when you think about reverse engineering, how you're going to create the strategy and how to rank, you want to do the same thing for a practical uh, offer that you'll create. So in this case, we created a guide on how to become a digital nomad and live and work from the road. Now, what again, we used the content that exists on the page and expanded a little bit, but what we did was we added specific practical exercises that people could do that will actually help them transform into a digital nomad. So again, if it's that you're trying to teach somebody how to do SEO, you can teach them on your content pillar how to do SEO, but maybe your downloadable SEO, uh, SEO offer shows them step-by-step step exactly the things that they should be doing. If you own an HVAC company and you're trying to teach somebody how to uh, maintenance their heating unit, maybe you educate them on how to go about it, but then you actually show them almost like a manual step-by-step step of how they can go about servicing their unit. The big thing is that you want to create educational content, you can still find a way of producing that content, but maybe that downloadable offer is actually offering those practical exercises, because this is a big thing that I've seen that people want more of versus just downloading a piece of content where it needs to be packaged. Yes? Are you, uh Great question. So the question is, are you getting emails from it or are we giving it away for free? So you can go a couple of different routes. For instance, the workbook that everybody has access to, I'm not getting anybody's emails right now. Like I'm not trying to market to anybody. I just want you to have the content. Um, and a lot of people do the approach where they're not trying to collect emails because that can actually deter people. So when you think about conversion rate, 
Like, is the goal to collect emails and try and remarket this person? Or if you feel so strong that your content is going to convert this person into a lead or a customer down the road, that you're just going to give it to them. So I would say that it would be helpful to do an experiment on it. I like to experiment everything. I try to be very unbiased. Even if somebody says, oh, don't do this, it won't work. You're like, right, well, maybe you just didn't do it right, or maybe you just didn't test it enough. But I would say, I would try to A-B test it. See, like, do a period where if you have it gated versus if it is just a, a button that lets somebody download it, see about how many people download it and access that content versus how many people actually uh, capture the leads. Now, if you tell your sales team that I'm saying this, you're like, he's wrong. So uh, I, I, would, I would approach that situation as best as you can. I think if your goal is lead generation, then I, I would say that you would want to gate it. And I think it's helpful because if you have to think about when somebody's giving you their email address, like I have my email now has like 15,000 unread emails, my personal email. I'm sure you all probably have the same problem. You have overload, so people don't like giving their email address a lot of times. So you really need to make sure that if you were just to have the content, and this is one of the biggest things I see with the, the number one through five listing is that the content that exists now, people, and I was teaching this. I, I don't know, I was teaching it last year, but I was even teaching it the year before that the first step was just creating a content pillar and then turning it into a guide. Now everybody's done that. So it's like the next added layer is if you actually add like an offer where it's like, hey, apply what you're learning by getting this practical worksheet or this practical offer. Like you're creating value to this person. So in my mind, like I would be willing to give my email address if I like your content and I'm like, well, now I want to apply and this person's giving me a free manual. So it's like, I think it's helpful to try that, like, but it is case by case. If, you, if you're trying to generate these, I probably would add that, uh, that lead form. <coughs> Great question. Any other questions? All right, so again, talking about that practical, again, creating those practical exercises, reading the homework assignments can be very helpful. Even going back to inbound content, yes, it teaches you how to become an effective content marketer, but there's so many books that do that. There's so many books that have all this information out there, and I really want to differentiate it. So what I did was, is I broke up what the end result looks like of how to develop a content process for your business, and broke it up into all these bite-sized chunks, and I think of each practical exercise as a puzzle piece. So each chapter, you're learning these different puzzle pieces, you connect those puzzle pieces together, and it creates that big picture by the end. You don't want to overwhelm people, you want to help them by doing each step, and then by the end, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm seeing the things that are happening right now. Because if you try and do everything at once and teach somebody something complex, like creating a content process that they might not have all the pieces together, you might want to start off with, well, maybe you need to get your website in order, right? Like, for example, with this book, it'll show you how, if you're trying to uh, get into blogging, maybe you should just generate some ideas for a guest blog or for a blog post. Once you do that, actually create that blog post. Here are the steps you go about creating a blog post. If you need an offer, here's how you can take some of the blog posts you have to repurpose it into an offer. And if you have an offer, maybe you could get deconstructed into a content pillar. So if I came to you and said, hey, I want you to create an offer, a content pillar, a series of blog posts, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you have to think about what is that journey that is first making the transformation and make it as easy as possible for them getting to the end result. That's why I put myself through everything because I want to make sure that what I'm creating is actually relevant and helpful. But for whatever your situation is, think about that transformation that you can help for that person and walk them through how to get there. Now, I know I just used that book as an example, and you're like, well, now Justin's telling me to write a book, like, thanks, man. That's kind of how long is that going to take me? But what I actually recommend is that before I published that book, I created the content marketing workbook. Now, the content marketing workbook, um, 
This offer has actually been downloaded almost 60,000 times on HubSpot. So I knew that something was provide, providing value with it. And this book is actually only like 20 pages long. It's less than 30 pages. And in the specific workbook, it'll get a little bit of a section of what the specific content is. It'll talk about what activities you need to do. And it'll give you like a reading assignment. So I don't get into the details of the content specifically. I tested this out. If this workbook only got like a thousand downloads and it wasn't something that was valuable, I might not have actually written a book, right? So like I used this and then 18 months later is when I actually published Inbound Content. It might happen for you, right? You might not think, I didn't think I was going to write a book in the first place, but if you do something and then all of a sudden, like you have a piece of content on your website. Uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier that if you have a piece of content on your website that's doing really well, then maybe you add a layer to where you create a worksheet and if that worksheet does really well, you're going to want to keep the momentum going and you don't want to ignore it and you might get into a situation where you have a book, a workshop, all these things and those are going to be informed by the success by you starting off with a piece of content that might have just initially done really well on your website. So don't do it for every piece of content, really focus on the things that are working and expanding it. And the thing is, is you want to create value in the near term but keep your long-term goals in mind and make progress towards them, right? Like, you don't want to overwhelm yourself by thinking about all these tasks because you want to think about how things are actually doing. Now, let's actually talk about some of those final thoughts and recap things, and then we'll leave some time for Q&A. So we've talked about this mountain a couple of times. We've talked about the climb to getting to the top, how it's daunting, it can be scary. But we also talked about a roadmap of how you can approach your climb by determining your broad topic, Identifying a series of contextual terms in support of that broad topic. Then identifying a series of subtopics in support of your contextual term. And then outlining a practical resource to help your audience through their transformation. So again, the goal, this is the approach that I used when I approached creating that content pillar for the Digital Nomad page on Wildly Wander's website. And in the first two months of launching that content pillar, it ranked at the 10th position on Google. So I, I met that first goal. I was like, I want to rank on this on the first page within two months, and it was five guest blog posts, it was a video, and it was that content pillar. So I focused initially on trying to get that visibility. And I getting to the first page was was a, was a helpful goal in the, in the near term, but then I really wanted to get to that first position. And I want to be realistic. I don't want to say that this strategy that you're going to do, you're going to implement it, you're going to get to that first position because I've been spending months being dedicated doing link building, doing anything I can to optimize the page, and then now it actually ranks at the fifth position on Google. It's not number one, but it is going up step by step up that search engine result page. And it is something that is important that when you're creating this content, you have to find a way of being interested in it, curious in it, because if you're dedicated to the content you're creating, then you're going to make sure that you're coming back over and over and over and reminding yourself why you're doing this in the first place, and it ultimately gets to the top. And once you get there, you'll see what it feels like to see those harder efforts actually pay off. Thanks so much. Now, I know I promised everybody the free workbook, so um, while we're doing some Q&A, all you have to do is go to inboundstrategy.com slash workbook, and then there's just a button you click. There's no uh, form or anything, and then you can access that, uh, that workbook and actually use it to build a plan for your business. And while we're doing that, if there's any questions on this session or if there's anything that we didn't discuss, um, we'd be happy to go over those too. Yes? Can you speak to uh, how this works for podcasts? Great. So a podcast, and, I've, and this is an experiment that I, I haven't 
if I only had, if it was like 36 hours in the day, it would be so much helpful, like if I, or if I just needed like two hours of sleep a night. But uh, the question was, is how do you, how can podcasts fit into this? So uh, Marcus Sherry, going back to uh, him, using him as an example, because I think he um, is relevant here. So what he has done is, when he creates a, uh, a blog post now, he will have a video that's featured, and he'll also have an audio file of it. So when you think about the accessibility of solving for your audience and making it easy as possible for them to consume your content, uh, it could be that what I would do in this case, like let's say going back to that digital nomad example, I've already created a video, I very well probably could create a podcast with at least 10 episodes just based on the content that I've already created. So when you're thinking about a podcast, um, one thing that you could consider is that you can either, if, if you're not using the content by repurposing or doing something different, I would even recommend just sprinkling in um, a relevant podcast throughout the page. Like that's one way if the content is not used from it, but another way that you can do it is you can use your content to inform different podcast episodes you would have. Um, now, I think in a very efficient mindset, I know everybody probably doesn't do that, but that's because if I'm thinking about the biggest impact that I can make with my time, I think that it's helpful to ultimately think about the channels that you're using that are helpful. So, do you already have a podcast? Yeah. Is it something where, is it, is it doing well? Is it, have you had many like episodes so far? Okay. So one thing you could actually gather from that is, and I, I've been trying to think of a, a business that does this well. Um, RyRob.com, it's R-Y-R-O-B.com. He has a podcast and the way that he does it is, is he has a podcast on his website and he also has it on iTunes. But he, he does it a different way. So he leads with a podcast, and then he uses the content from the podcast to build an actual article. Um, a great example of this is not a podcast, it's actually a video series, is Moz's Whiteboard Friday segment. I don't know if anybody's seen this. Super valuable. Moz has been doing it. When I talk about Larry Kim, Moz is like the first person that I ever learned from because Brandon Fishman, who was the CEO at the time, uh, back in like 2008, he would create have a Whiteboard Friday segment where he would teach you an SEO tactic or strategy, and then you can take the content from that video and he would build like a blog post out. So like, that's a different efficient way of going about it. So with a podcast, what I would recommend is promote your podcast on different pages, but then I would actually recommend taking your podcast episode and transcribing it and maybe making it readable because then that can help from a, a search perspective and give you content in an efficient way. And so for the transcript, yep. uh, is it, better to just post it or make it an attachment or put it I, I would recommend, so Google can, can crawl PDFs, but you can't, you can't amend PDFs. Mm -hmm. Like having a book is, is, it's great, but like for me, it sometimes it's perturbing because it's like, man, I just want to update the content on page 67. Mm -hmm. And for digital content, like you can actually go in and change the transcript over time. So I would recommend making it solve for the user's experience by having like maybe the top it's like the podcast it has like the either the link to i would actually probably put the the audio file on the website you can still have it on mm -hmm. itunes mm -hmm. and then i would have a use the content from the transcript to create an article and so again going back to Moz's example even though it's a video they don't just use the transcription they clean it up because the way you talk sometimes like if we use this session from today I probably could create this into its own content builder, but I wouldn't want to just transcribe because I probably said the same word three times sometimes. You want to make sure that you clean it up and make it something that's actually readable. So um, I would recommend actually creating the content on the page instead of the PDF. You could do the PDF, but then you would have like the audio file on the PDF and no content on the page, and that would probably, in my mind, that might actually have a high bounce rate. So, so audio, 
transcript in full text for crawling and the attachment? Yeah, you can have the attachment. I think with the attachment, though, that's not seen as duplicate content. I think it's not. It's not that it would be duplicate content. I just okay. I try to think of the value with this person. You could have. You could have. The, I would say that. Like again, I don't want to be biased. I would have the download of the. I might not have them give their email to get it right. because you have to think of it. What value are they getting out of it? Um, the other thing is though is if you have another offer that you want to promote that's relevant to it that's better than just a transcript. Yeah. I might recommend that. But if you don't have one, you could say yeah. You could get. The transcript file from because I've seen a lot of people do that where it's like, hey, get the transcription of it so you can read it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that could be another way of going about it. Okay. Yeah, great question. Thanks. Yes. Not only the question, but kind of um, I guess it's general what Jennifer said. Sure. Um, the term that I heard a lot today was big content. Yep. Now, as a teacher, um, children learn different ways. Um, so some are visual, some are hands-on, some are auditory. So I think that duplicate content, but in different areas to um, to go toward those learning modalities to consume is different a ways. better way. Yeah. Um, because like having a video, the visual learner learns that, but then you have an audio, which the auditory learner learns like audio book. Yes. So they can do while they're doing things, while they're doing other things. Um, and then also the blog post, people like to read. So it's all the same message. That, in my mind, if you were to take one thing away from today's session, that is like one of the biggest learnings is from efficiency of, of doing that exact tactic where it's like maybe you, and it doesn't really matter what you start off with. If you're a video first, and do a video and then do everything else first. If you're a better writer, then start off with the video or start off with the blog post and then do everything else. But just like you said, like if you, um, inbound strategy game, for example, the way that I approached that was that I built the script for the workshop first. I then use that script from the workshop to create the workshop video and to build the content pillar on the page and even create three other smaller videos for the website. So I created one big piece of content that I essentially build the entire website with. So what I would recommend is instead of trying to uh, divert your attention by creating too many different pieces of content, focus on creating one big thing, right? Maybe it's a book you want to write. Maybe it's something that you want to write a subject matter around and then find ways of chopping it up, creating other pieces of content, and more importantly, using con like creating content for other channels because one big thing is that like if you have a video, if you have posts on social media, if you have like let's say you create a PowerPoint deck with a workshop that you put on SlideShare, the best part about it is that you can use all these elements to optimize your either content pillar or blog post. So for example, like you have a content pillar, you have a video at the top, you have an audio file underneath it, and then you have your social messages that are embedded throughout it. So you create this engaging experience with all this content that is similar to what is on the page. So yes. can we using um, what you said earlier with the mountain? Yeah. Can the different modalities of, of our content, yeah. like podcast, video, blog posts, kind of be like a subtopic? They are. They're all, they're all subtopics. They, I mean, they all say the same thing. They're, or you run out and they're on the same path. Yep. Um, but there's a different way to walk the path. And the thing is, it's like these channels that you're opening, like a podcast takes a lot of work. I'm sure like you started the podcast, like you have to think about the, uh, the editing of it, you have to think about the content that you're creating. So the way to think of it is, is like you want to make sure that you're opening channels that are helpful for your audience, but then
then you want to make sure that how is this channel going to help me get somebody back to what I want them to do. So maybe you have a podcast, maybe you have a video, but is this video meant to inspire or educate this person and try to push them over to this page where I can help them more, which is connected to a practical offer. So I would say that with any channel and piece of content you're creating, think about how it connects to other content on your site and getting people to that ultimate conversion. Maybe that conversion is then downloading a piece of content. Maybe it's them buying something. Maybe sometimes they don't even need to download an offer. Maybe they're buying something. But you want to make sure that you don't try and do everything because if you try and do too much versus do one thing really well, like I would actually recommend starting off with one of those channels first, whether it's a podcast, whether it's video, whether it's blogging, and then be like, okay, I have some content here, I'm going to repurpose it and maybe start some video, or maybe I'll repurpose it and do a podcast. One thing I would suggest is like, find out the best way that your audience learns. If it is like audio, then do the podcast. If it is visual, maybe do the videos and start with that first. Yeah, great yeah, great question. Yes? I work at a large organization that's so really focused on things like page titles, meta descriptions, sure. and things like that, yeah. which is all very wonderful. Yeah. Um, but the in-page content hasn't been updated since 2015. Can you talk about it a little bit? They're solving for the search engine, not the user here. Right. So, and, and it, nice. yeah, and, and so there's two, there's two solutions to that. The first one is that, like, it is, it is, they're doing historical optimization. I want to be careful I say this, but they're doing it almost, it's not that they're doing it lazy, but it's like if they are only up, they're only optimizing the title tag. And, and that's totally, well, the title tag is one of the most important, the title tag and the page URL, or no, the title tag and the um, uh, H1 tag are going to be one of the most important SEO indicators for data ranking, because ultimately when you see that clickable blue text on the search engine result page, that's coming from like the title tag. So I, what I would recommend is two things. The first one is look at the updates that they're making if they're actually making an impact. Because if it is, maybe they don't really need to update the content. But if they're making the updates, maybe it's starting off with a page that's doing well and then increasing the content on it. One thing you want to be weary of is taking the content off. Like this is the big thing I see when people are doing website redesigns. They'll do a website redesign and then their goal is like we want to make it visual and they lose a lot of content and all their rankings go away. So what that means is like, if a search engine is looking at the content that's already ranking and that content changes too much, it can go away. So what I would recommend is if you find a page that is doing well that they've optimized the title tag, maybe what you do is you optimize the page um, for by updating the content on it and seeing if you can make incremental progress on that front. Because that would be a way of going about it. So like, and the way to think of it is like, in the uh, business blogging course, we actually talk about that specifically. We talk about that you should look at the content that's doing well is called historical optimization by saying you want to get rid of the content by weeding out the uh, content from the content that's not working, the content that is working, you want to expand off of it. Maybe you have a blog post that's crushing it right now and you turn that into your content pillar because ultimately you want to build around that and then send out to that and then put conversion points on it. So the content that's doing it if they're doing historical optimization, make sure that they're doing it on the pages that are doing well and then maybe find a way of doing an experiment where you take one page that they did optimize that you do more optimizations to, and if you can show incremental progress of that page, then it's going to be easier for you to say, hey, I did an experiment, I updated the page's content, I saw these results versus the results you received, because whenever you go into a conversation, if you're making a pitch, you want to have as much data and explanation to support why you want to make big changes, versus just saying, this is a great idea. Um, I've learned that over, over my career, like 
you have a great idea, people are going to listen more. If you have at least a small scale experiment that you performed, then you can scale it. Great question. Yes? Uh, do you recommend uh, incorporating content from, say, traditional media that, that supports your uh, you know, broad topic? Yes. So, okay, how do you recommend that? So, before I was at HubSpot, I was doing experiments, and that's why I'm I feel so fortunate that I can be here and get trainings like this because I've essentially been working on this before HubSpot. I worked at startups, um, and there was one startup that I worked at that I was on the services delivery team, and I would have clients that didn't have much budget, but they had, or no, they had budget, but the things that they wanted, they didn't have enough money to pay for all of the assets they wanted, but I couldn't lose them as a client. I was like, I need to keep them happy, and they need to find ways of being efficient and giving them more. So what we did was there was one project where we had a um, they had an infographic that we built on their website that was clickable that you could go around. And I think it was for like how to do a home renovation, and they spent all the money on this. And this is when I was new to the account. And I was like, well, we just spent all the money on this. We don't really have much money for other things. But if I could use this content, what we did was we created a printable brochure version of that that they could give away in their specific location. We created a animated video where all it really was was the explanation of what the graphic looked like um, with different screenshots of it to keep it easy, like to keep the budget down. Um, but going back to it, the if you have something that is in whether whether way you go about it, if you already have a brochure, you might be able to bring that online somehow, or if you do the other way around, the content you are creating, if you have like a physical like brick and mortar location, then most definitely. I would say the content, the whole goal, again, thinking about the user experience, if somebody finds that brochure, it might not be a clickable link, but maybe you'll put a link in there that'll help somebody understand where they can go to learn more. So I would most definitely say that whatever you're doing should support any part of your marketing plan, um, especially like traditional, whether it's uh, like uh, having like a brochure or like a leaflet, or even like if you go to a trade show, like imagine if you were to have like an educational content series. We didn't get into this today, but Inbound Strategy Camp shows you a much longer version of how to build this out. But let's say you get to that point and you have a, imagine if you were like at a trade show and you had a physical book that you could give somebody. Like you could give away books that explain something. Like it just makes you look a little bit more credible if you have content around a specific subject matter. So I would definitely think about traditional and ways that you could reuse your digital content to support it and vice versa. Uh, quick follow up question. Yeah. Suppose the content is created by another entity, a newspaper. Pops up that uh, article in a new window. 
um, and not taking somebody off your site. But I think it's helpful to send people because the way that I would link to somebody is I would have it reinforced what I'm saying. So like, if I'm saying something, I can almost paraphrase it. But then it's like, if you're if somebody's reading this, like, how's I don't know if I believe this. You can link to an article that somebody wrote that talks about it more in depth if you someone need like more credibility. About it. So that's the way that I would use like like a newspaper.
so fabulous. I was in the go and get a microphone. I was like, oh, I never thought it.